Hello, Sawona, how's it? Molo, Jambo, and welcome to Every Nation Devon Podcast. We hope this message will inspire you and draw you closer to Christ. Enjoy. Well, I mean, I'm sure you can all agree it's been quite a crazy week in Durban. And, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with everyone who uh, has, has been suffering in this last week. And there's been many who have been affected by the floods. And, uh, you know, we had a beautiful time of worship here on Friday night, a, a great time of prayer, just praying for our city, praying for all those who are affected. I just wanted to say well done to the Creative Worship Arts Ministry, Twam, for your effort on Friday. Can we give them a hand? They were amazing. And, um, you know, the way, we, the way we're interpreting what's happening in our city at the moment is this, is that Durban seems to be coming under attack in multiple ways, in multiple different avenues. And the way we see it, the way we interpret it, is that Durban revival's coming. And that Durban is gonna be the center point or a, a significant point in the revival. We trust in God for revival. And uh, we believe that everything that the enemy's trying to bring against our city is gonna be replaced by a mighty move of God. And so that's where our faith is. That's what we're pressing into. And I just wanna say well done to all those who are rising early to be in our revival prayer meetings that are happening every single morning at 5 a.m. I'm trying to get there at least three times a week. Sometimes I'm getting there five times a week and the fire never stops. And I just wanna honor you guys. Thank you, because you're the engine room of the church and even the city and uh, the catalyst for what I believe God is going to do. So if you have a Bible this morning, let's get into some word. We're going to be talking Resurrection Sunday, and it's Acts chapter 17 that we're going to, Acts 17 is where we're going to base ourselves. But before we get into the word and just read it, let me kind of bring some context to the story that we're going to jump into this morning. So the context is this. The Apostle Paul and his two brothers in ministry, Silas and Timothy, are sent by the church to go and preach the gospel throughout the Roman Empire to all the Gentiles. And they are going out city by city, preaching the gospel and seeing tremendous results. What are they doing in every city that they go to? Well, they go to each city and they start the BFC. Amen? Paul said, I lay the foundations like an expert builder, all right? So every city he went into, he started the BFC, and people would get saved, and they would believe in Jesus, they would get baptized in water, and then he would form them into a church, so he would do the CMC with them, amen? And then after he had done the CMC with them, he would then start the DMC and train them on how to make disciples, and then he would appoint them and leave them and go to the next city, and that there will be a healthy church thereafter. So every city that Paul went into, he basically started the growth plan. So how important is the growth plan? Very important. Go to our website, click grow, and start growing. Amen? <laughs> it's part of the mission that's been going on for 2,000 years. So every city that he would go to, and so he would go one by one by one, and eventually he comes to the city of Athens. Athens, modern-day capital of Greece, was a, a bustling city. It was a city that was a center of trade, a commerce. It was a port city. It was such a significant city in the Greek Empire, but now the Roman Empire had taken over, so the Romans had control of the city, but it was still the center of Greek philosophy. It was a center of Greek learning, and when you, when you look at Athens in the, in the first century, what you notice is that it was a very religious city as well. In fact, 
In Athens, in those days, there was a saying that said, there are more gods in Athens than men. And Paul agreed with this. When he arrived in Athens, he was grieved because he saw that the city was given to idols. That's what he said. I don't know if you can try and imagine that for a moment, but on every street corner, every nook, every cranny, every business, everywhere you go, there was always a shrine, a temple, an idol, something there. I mean, I don't know if you've been to to India, but when I went to Mumbai many years ago, It felt like that to me as well. It was like a city that had been given to idols. I arrived at the airport and there was a shrine in the airport. You get into the taxi and there's idols in the taxi. You arrive at the hotel and there's idols in the foyer. You go into your bedroom and they've stuck them on the walls as well. Then you turn on the TV and they're selling idols online. Kind of like Verimark products. You know like how you, you see these guys and they're trying to sell the broom that will solve all the problems of every other broom that's been before, you know? They're, they're, they're on TV, they're selling these, these idols and these statues just like that as well. And uh, kind of maybe like us, you know? Like we turn on the TV and we're watching our idols, you know? They, they, they were, this, is what, this was the city of Athens. It was completely given to idolatry. And this grieved Paul. And uh, so when he arrived in Athens, he began preaching the gospel. And he started going to the synagogues and to the Jews first. And then he would also go into the marketplaces, into the, into the, the places of commerce. And he would preach the gospel to them as well. And when he would go into these marketplaces, he would be preaching the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And in a city like Athens, Paul should just have been another voice. Because they were used to hearing voices like this. But Athens was a little bit unique. Athens was a city that had itching ears. Do you know what I mean by that? They were always looking for something new. What's the new? Kind of like our Netflix culture. What's new? What's new? Where's the next, where's the next hero movie? Where's the next action-adventure movie? Where's the next epic? When's the next romantic comedy? You know, they're always looking for the something new, something new to listen to. And the thing about Paul's message was that there was something new. There was something that they had never ever heard of in their entire lives. And people started hearing him in the marketplace and they said, what is this? We've never heard this before. And they were like, and so there was this buzz in Athens. There was this like commotion that took place. And they decided, some people had got back to some of the leaders in Athens. And the leaders said, no, 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 bring this guy to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus for like those of us who don't know, all right, the Areopagus was basically this hill in Athens. And on this hill, there were like all these stones, and it was like a natural sort of amphitheater, but it was the place where all the Athenian leaders would go, and they would debate, and there would be uh, laws that were passed there, there were trials that were happened there. Very important stuff for the city happened on this hill that overlooked the city. All the leaders would gather there. So for Paul to be invited, morning Lungi, for Paul to be invited, <laughs> to, to the Areopagus is kind of like it's kind of like getting a spot in like being invited to share in parliament or, or being invited to like a major news network television broadcast like a, like a prime time talk show or something like that that's the equivalent of what Paul was invited to and so Paul goes to the Areopagus and he delivers a message he preaches to all these Athenian leaders, these leaders who are steeped in idolatry and philosophy and all these ideas. 
and he delivers probably one of the most amazing preachers ever. In fact, it's recorded in Acts chapter 17 what he preached, and that chapter alone has influenced Christian missiology for centuries. It, you know, the, the apostle Peter told us, he said, always be ready to give an account for the hope that's in you. Can you look at somebody this morning and say, be ready to give an account? This is what Peter, the apostle, told us. Be ready to give an account. Be ready to share what, what has been put inside of you. Always be ready to give an account. Be ready when you're in the taxi. Be ready at work. Be ready when you're at coffee. Be ready when you're going home. Be ready when you're running with your mates. Be ready. Always be ready to give an account. But Peter said this, but do so with gentleness and respect. So that's how the gospel's meant to go. It's never meant to be this like turn or burn, you know, beating people with Bibles kind of thing. It's No, we do it with gentleness and respect, but we're ready to give an account. So Peter told us what to do, but Paul in Acts chapter 17 shows us how to do it. He shows us this gentleness. He shows us this respect in how he gives an account of the gospel. And this is what he does. He looks into the culture of their city. He looks into it, and he looks for connection points. He looks for things in their lives that he could then draw a bridge from that to the gospel. In order to help them understand the gospel, he looks into their culture for stuff like that. And one of the things that he notices when he's in Athens, while he's walking in the streets one day, is that they have a temple dedicated to the agnostos theos, the unknown God. You see, these people were so devout and making sure that they didn't want to leave out any divinity that they even had a temple to the unknown God. Paul looked at that and he was like, I got that one. <laughs> I got that one. That's a connection point. So he arrives and he begins to preach and he says, you Athenians are very devout people. I noticed that you have a temple dedicated to the unknown God. It's that God that I come to talk to you about today. <laughs> Draws a connection point with their culture. And, uh, and then he begins to unfold the story of creation. He then confronts their idolatry, showing that God is not to be worshipped by images made like him, but from the heart. And, and even in his address, what he does is he notices some of their poetry and some of their popular sayings, and he brings that into his speech in order to build another connection point with them. And in there, he even quotes one of their ancient Greek philosophers, a guy by the name of Epimendes. And Epimendes coined the phrase like 600 years before Christ, in him we live, move, and have our being. It was a common poem. It was something that they, they shared re regarding the Logos in their time. But, it, was, but it, was, it wasn't applied to Christ by Epimendes. But Paul looked into their culture and saw that, hang on, that is something that is true when applied to Christ. And so he brings it into, and I know a lot of you were reading Acts chapter 17, and you thought, in him we live, move, and being is scripture. No, it's not. It's actually ancient Greek philosophy. But because Paul quotes it, it's now in scripture. <laughs> and it is true because there's truth in all cultures when applied in the right way to the gospel. 
So he takes the truth, he applies it to Jesus, and he delivers this message. But all of this is just build up. All of this is, is, is him connecting with his audience. All of this is just finding ways into their hearts. And he's building up to a moment, the moment where he's going to deliver, deliver the apex of the gospel, the, the pinnacle of the gospel. It's the moment that, it's the information that got him to the Areopagus. It's the, inf- it's the reason why people brought him there was because of just this one part of what Paul was sharing. And he's building up to this part. And this part, we must understand, of the gospel is the pinnacle of the gospel. It's the hinge of the gospel. It's the foundation of the gospel. It's the pillar of the gospel. It's, every, it's the thing that the entire gospel hangs on. This piece of information that Paul is about to share in Acts chapter 70 is the thing that the whole gospel stands or falls on. It's the thing that they had never heard of in their entire lives. It's the thing that makes Christianity completely unique to any other idea, philosophy, or religion that's in the world today. Nothing like this has happened anywhere else but in the story of Christ. It is the most demanding truth the world has ever heard. And when I say demanding truth, what I mean is this. It's truth that demands something from you. It demands something from you. It's not truth that you can just go, oh, that's, that's an interesting statistic. You know, maybe I'll remember it, maybe I won't. No, it's a truth that demands your attention. It's a truth that demands your devotion, your passion, your mission. It's truth that demands something from each and every single one of us. We cannot just channel flip Paul after he said what he's going to say. And I want us this morning just to, to be captured again by the pinnacle of our faith. I want us this morning just to go and look at what Paul is about to say to these Athenian leaders and allow our hearts just to be captured by the uniqueness of it, be captured by the profoundness of it. Let it grab our attention again and let it grab our passion again so that we will do what we see Paul, Silas, and Timothy doing, always being ready to give an account for the hope that's in us. Before we read, let's just pray. Father in heaven, we commit this time to you. Lord, we believe that your plans for us are good, but that everything good starts with your word. Lord, your word brings life, it brings healing and direction, and we treasure it more than our daily bread. Lord, this morning we boldly confess that our minds are alert, our hearts are receptive, and we say, Lord, speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Are you in Acts 17? Okay, we're going to read from verse 30. This is the pinnacle of everything he's been building up to, okay? Acts chapter 17, verse 30, he says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, and he has given us assurance. Can you say assurance? Assurance. He's given us what? Fact. Assurance. 
something that we can trust in. He's given us assurance of this to all by doing what? Raising him from the dead. Now, you've heard the gospel message many times, I'm sure, and you've been in church a few times before, I'm sure. Just imagine you hearing this for the very first time. He's given us assurance of this by doing what? Raising a man from the dead. The moment they heard Paul bring up the topic of what? The resurrection. Some of them ridiculed him, then got up and walked out. And others said, we'll we'll hear you again later. Hear you later about these things. There it is, people. That is the pinnacle of our faith. This is the apex of our faith. This is the foundation, the pillar of our faith. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul was sharing in the marketplaces. This is the issue that got him to Mars Hill, or Arapagus, the, the Romans called it Mars Hill. But it was also the issue that ended his address at Mars Hill. They were willing to listen to everything else he was saying, But as soon as he spoke about the resurrection and the demand that it places on us, they were like, ah, nah, whatever, we're out of here. Why? Well, because death is the ultimate reality of life. It's the uncontestable fact of life is that 10 out of 10 die. It's like gravity, all right? We can try and avoid it. We can try and suppress it, but eventually everything that goes up must come down. Now you're telling me someone rose from what? The dead. And they're not a ghost? No, they're alive. Fully in their body? Yes, fully in their body. It's like it doesn't make sense to the mind at all. Interesting stat from Google I found out is that, did you know that 7% of all the people that have ever lived are actually alive to this today? This is an interesting statistic. It basically says that 93% are dead. 93% of all the humans, that, if we were to stop time right now, we would be the 7% that escaped. 93% have been taken by death, and death is hunting down the last 7%. Then in Proverbs chapter 30, it says this. It says that there's four, three things that are never satisfied, four things that never say enough. And one of them is what? The grave. The grave never says, well, I've had 93% enough. We're full. We, you know, and no more, please, no more death. No more, we, we're done here, 93%. We've, we've had more than our fair share. The grave never says we've had enough. So... The topic that Paul raised is a topic that is key to our our existence today. It's what he was raising was something that goes against the natural order of what we know life to be, death. We cannot pretend that death is not there. We cannot like just pretend, I'll just pretend, just pretend although some people in our times really try and do. We cannot avoid it. I mean, you can go for Botox. <laughs> you can go for a few lifts and a few tucks and a few, but it's, it's, death is eventually gonna get you. You know what, even living a healthy life, which we all must do, amen, so we live the longest life possible so we can glorify God in our bodies, amen. Even the healthiest life, though, 
the person who was the healthiest, who always ate their spinach and never ate their Easter eggs because they were, you know, bad for them. Even them, death catches them. And the thing about death is this, is that we cannot romanticize it in any way because we cannot deny that when it comes and impacts our lives, there is tremendous pain and hurt that comes with that. Death takes away everything and everyone that's important to us, and it reduces the human life to something that is meaningless on the span of time. It takes everything away from you. Doesn't matter if you were rich or if you were poor, you die alike. Doesn't matter if you did something great with your life or you did nothing with your life, death is the leveler of all. And in 50 years, apparently after our death, no one will ever remember us again. So we remember our grannies and our grandpas and maybe our great-grandparents. Anyone here remember their great-great-grandparents? Can you tell me anything about their lives? Can you tell me that they did something good? Did they build something? Did they... We don't know. That's our future as well here on this planet. Death if we are willing to accept it, is this. It is the ultimate enemy of humanity. It is the ultimate thief of the human experience. Every religion is therefore concerned about death or has a theory about death, but no religion has anyone who has claimed to conquer death. When the angels met the disciples coming to the tomb. They said to them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? There is no other testimony like that in any other faith or religion. If we're gonna listen to or obey anyone, it must be the person who didn't come with another theory about death, but the person who was able to actually conquer death. You see, I want you to understand this morning that the resurrection is the thing that sifts the pretenders from the real thing. Any one of us can stand up here with the philosophy of what happens after, after death. We can all, oh, I believe, you know, I'll become like this drop of water and then I'll go into the ground and I'll, and I'll become like the, part of like the cosmos but within the earth and, and breathe life and energy into other things and I'll be, you know, you can, you can make up any story you want and somebody else can go and make up their story but who are we going to believe at the end of the day? Because... This, the world has seen a lot of great philosophers, but I can tell you now they're all dead. The world has seen a lot of great religious leaders, but I can tell you now they're all dead. There's been a lot of great people who have risen and said a lot of interesting things, but they're all dead. There's only one person who has actually conquered death. This is the resurrection story, people. This is the story that validates Jesus. Jesus even said this, you want proof? destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. And then he went and did that. <laughs> if you want the evidence that he was the son of God, that all his teaching really was from God, then he would destroy this temple, and in three days, he'll raise it. Basically saying, my resurrection will prove everything that I have said. It validates his testimony. Often we think that it's the miracles that validates Jesus' testimony, but it's not. Prophets have done miracles. 
People are doing miracles even to this day, things that we cannot explain. Some people think it was his teaching. Nobody said the words of Jesus, and absolutely true. His teaching is incredible. But many other people have risen and said interesting and amazing things as well. The thing that separates Jesus from every other person is his resurrection from the dead. So important is the resurrection that when the church in Corinth started to not believe in the resurrection, Paul wrote an entire discourse devoted to teaching them about the resurrection. He said to them in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen, then your preaching, our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is empty, people. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And he said, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You see, death is the ultimate leveler of every idea and every philosophy. That's great, you can tell us how to live our lives. Great, you can tell me how to have inner peace. Great, you can give me a nice idea about making me think better about myself. But at the end of the day, I will die. And if you can't help me with that, then what help really are you? Because tomorrow I die. Timothy Keller said the following. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. It was the ultimate proof that, yes, you need to pay attention now to everything else he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? How true. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. <laughs> The issue is not whether you like, and listen, let's be honest, some of the things Jesus said we don't really like, amen? Especially the love your enemies and turn the other cheek and all of that. Nah, you know? We don't really like it, but it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It doesn't matter what the picture of the Father that he gave to you, whether you like that or not, whether that you identify that with your faith or your culture or whatever, it doesn't matter. Don't believe anything that Jesus says unless he rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, that changes everything. Amen. If he's still alive to this day, and that tomb is empty like those disciples found it, and those Roman gods couldn't explain, and the rest of the, it, 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 it is, it's a historical fact that that tomb was empty, people. There is no way they try to say that the disciples stole that body. There's no ways they would have got past that Roman army and rolled back that stone and then taken the body and then gone out and preached everywhere that he's alive. And then people would go like, okay, we're going to kill you as well. And they're like, yeah, sure, just kill me. I'll die for a lie. No. The, uh, William Lane Crane, Craig says this. He says, the fact that Christianity didn't just survive in Jerusalem, but thrived and grew. And some of the priests and some of the leading Pharisees even started to join. And a massive church was formed in the very place where Jesus was crucified is testimony to the fact that the tomb was empty. It's testimony to that. It's evidence that demands a verdict. It's truth that demands something from us. We cannot just ignore or pass over this thing at all. What does it demand from us? It demands, firstly, your attention. It demands your attention. You know, to ignore this interesting, let's call it a fact, 
to ignore this, like some of those Athenians did, is the ultimate error you could ever make with your life. It would be the ultimate evidence that you are a complete fool, that you would pass over this evidence over here. This demands your attention. If you brush over this, it's basically, you're basically saying that you love death. Proverbs 8 says this, which might very well be the words of Jesus, verse 36. But those who miss me injure themselves. All who hate me love death. Those who miss me, those who pass over this, those who ignore, those who laugh, those who mock, those who scorn, those who say, ah, whatever, you know, they injure themselves. Why? Because here is life, people. Here is life. Here is the life we're looking for. This is what we're searching for. This is what, the hum this is what humanity needs at the end of the day. We don't need another politician selling us something. We don't need another fancy thing to buy from TV. What we need is life. What we need, don't we realize, is that we're dying. I mean, if I had to come to you, you're, you're in, a, in a desert, all right? Well, if I had to come to you now, let's just say I came to you now and said, what would you like? Would you like some diamonds or would you like some water? What were you going to take? I'm going to take the diamonds, Pastor. I'm going to take the diamonds. Girls like diamonds, best friend, yeah. Take the diamonds. But if I put you in a desert and ask you the same question, you push those diamonds away and you grab the water. What changed? Your circumstances. Your circumstances changed. See, a lot of people think, oh, I've got life. I don't need this life, eternal life. I've got life. I'm young. I've got time. We were on the way to church this morning and there was a big accident on the highway. It just happened, like literally a couple minutes before we got there. Hey, we've got life, but for how long? And if you were in that accident, would you still be saying, I've got life? Or would that be the moment where your circumstances changed and you realized the inevitable, that death is actually knocking on your door every single day? When will the resurrection be important to you? Wisdom says, I don't, I, wisdom says this, whatever the circumstances are, I know what's of true value. Wisdom says, I know what's really of value. I can see all the pretends, but I know what's really valuable. And what is really valuable, what we need, what every single one of us need in this room is life, eternal life. This is what the resurrection proves to us. All who hate me love death. Why would we love death? Is that maybe just the ultimate deception of humanity is that we do love death and give ourselves to things that destroy us? Why would we love our enemy, the ultimate enemy that steals everything from us? Yet when we pass over the resurrection, like any other thing, we are indeed loving death and making friends with our greatest enemy. People, this resurrection demands your attention. It demands you to stop and go, do I have eternal life? Is my life secure? Will I continue to live though I die like Jesus promised? And if not, church, I want to encourage you, let this be the day 
that you just go, Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I believe that you died and you rose so that I could have eternal life. Let this be the day that your attention is grasped for just a moment and you realize how incredible it is that someone rose from the dead and says, I have the keys of death in Hades. I got the keys of death in Hades. In other words, I got this thing. This great enemy of yours, I've got it under my feet. I've got it. Let this be the day that you put your trust in that Savior. That Savior, not like any other one who's still in their graves. That Savior who's got an empty tomb. Amen? Secondly, it demands your passion. It demands your attention, and I'll finish with this. It demands your passion. C.S. Lewis said the following. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if, tr if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. The resurrection is the thing that makes Christianity true. Paul said it. He said, if Jesus didn't rise again, guys, let's go home. Let's just go eat and drink because tomorrow we dead. Like, all this effort is it's nothing if Jesus didn't rise. The resurrection is what makes this message true. C.S. Lewis say, if Christianity is true, if that resurrection did happen, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I want to ask you this morning, like, what are you passionate about? Where is your passion? Is it gaming? Is it sports? Is it food? Where are the foodies this morning? <laughs> where, 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 are you, where are the things that you're giving your energy, your time, your attention to? What are those things? And can I ask you this morning that you take all of those things and you put them in their place and you take the resurrection of Jesus and you put it above them. This resurrection demands your passion. You know, it's really interesting in John chapter 20, when Jesus had risen from the dead, Mary Magdalene, well, Ma Magdalene is not her surname. She's from Magdalene, the town, Mary of Magdalene, all right? So she's in the garden. The one whom Jesus casted seven demons out, the one who loved Jesus so much, the one whose life was transformed by Jesus, is going to the tomb early in the morning. She's weeping because the tomb has been opened. The body is gone. She thinks this is just it. Now they've stolen the body. They've done this. And now they'd steal the body. She's broken. She's heartbroken. And Jesus, on his way to ascending to the Father, topic for another day, is that Jesus descended to hell first got the keys of death in Hades, and then ascended to his father, all right? Before that, nobody could ascend. He led all those who were in, um, in Hades, in Abraham's bosom, to the father in that moment, all right? But before he's ascending, before he's about to make his triumphal entry in the new Jerusalem, before he's about to ascend to his father, the tears of one woman capture him, and he stops and he says to him, and he calls her name, and she realizes it's him. And she tries to grab him, and he says, don't grab me, don't cling to me, because I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But it's interesting what he says to her thereafter. He says, go tell the others. Go tell the others. The first evangelist was a woman. In Jewish culture, women's testimonies were not counted in a court of law. 
Women were perceived to be lower than men, even like children, and their testimony couldn't even be held. But isn't this the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, is that he would choose what in the world is low-born, what in the world is insignificant, what in the world is looked down upon, and he would say, you're my messenger. Go and tell the others. This is the upside-down kingdom that we've been brought into. This is the beautiful king that we serve. This, he's like, he's not content to leave this world the same, people. <laughs> and now 60% of the missionary force in the world is women. <laughs> How's that for a turnaround? Praise God. Praise God. Come on. Amen. He came to change the world as well. Amen? Amen. He says, go and tell. She goes and tells. The other disciples don't even believe her. It's a testimony of a woman. Jesus has to appear to them and say, you unbelieving, stop being unbelieving. He even eats some fish in their presence because they couldn't really believe even seeing him there. Some broiled fish. I've never eaten broiled fish. I don't really. <laughs> but interesting <laughs> that after he's encountered them, after that resurrection moment, after they're seeing Jesus, after they're hearing Jesus, what does he tell them? As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Go tell the world. Go tell the world what? Go tell the world that Jesus lives. Go tell the world that their end is not the grave. Go tell the world that the greatest enemy of humanity has actually been defeated. Go and tell the world that death has been defeated. Go and tell the world that the grave is not their final place. Go tell the world that there's this thing called eternal life and it's a gift. Anyone can have it. And it doesn't matter what you've done or where you come from, whether you're a woman who had seven demons cast out of you or you were a religious Pharisee, it doesn't matter where you come from, what standing you're in, this gift is for you as well. Go tell the world every tribe, every tongue, every language that Jesus has in fact risen from the dead, made a way for you to know God and that you can have eternal life. Go tell the world that your life is no longer meaningless. Go tell people that, 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 that your life is significant. Go tell the world that your life can be lived in eternity and have eternal significance and even have eternal rewards. Go tell the world that there's a new home for you that there's a new planet for you, that there's a new city for you, that there's a new Jerusalem for you. Go tell the world that there's a new body for you. Everyone who's sick and in pain and struggling and feeling the burden of the curse, go tell them there's a new body. It's like this body. It can never be killed again. Go tell all those who are weeping that they don't need to weep any longer. Go tell those who weep that, that, that there's a time when he will wipe away every tear. In Psalm 56, it says that all our tears are captured in his bottle. They are recorded in his book. Every tear that you have shed has been recorded. It's been recorded. And God has, Jesus has created a time when there will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more curse. There will be no more cockroaches. <laughs> At Durbanites, we feel that one, eh? We feel, amen, amen, hallelujah. Let's praise him for no more cockroaches, amen, amen. <laughs> this resurrection demands that you go and tell. 
It demands your passion. It demands you to go out on mission and declare like Gogo Alma, he is risen. The apostle Peter said, always be ready to give an account of your faith. I don't know what you need to do to make sure that you can give an account of your faith, but do it. I'll give you a hint, the growth plan. <laughs> but do what you can to give an account. Do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. But do it. Don't shy away from it. Don't, don't be intimidated by what you see in culture. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says, The believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Church, let's be that church. When you go to coffee and you're talking about something, how can you bring something like Paul did? He looked at the, the person, the culture. What bridge can you build so that they can hear about the resurrection? How can you say he is risen to someone? How can you tell them that death is no longer their only hope in life? How, how can you bring it into the conversation? Be smart like Paul. Be like passionate like this early church was. But church, let us not miss out on what we have to do with this resurrection. And that is go and tell the world. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. For more messages like these and other resources, you can visit our website at emdurban.com. Remember to subscribe to our podcast channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Be blessed.